Turn with me in your Bible to Revelation chapter 20, where we'll return to a passage that we began looking at last Sunday. And within this text, the Apostle John is given a vision of the final judgment of man before the great white throne of God. And it very well may be the most sobering passage in all of the Bible, because this is a passage that really emphasizes or stresses the finality of judgment. Every man and woman who has ever lived or ever will live has an appointment to stand before the Lord. Did you know that? Martin Luther once said, I believe it was Luther who said that he had two dates on his calendar that mattered, only two dates, this day and that day, referring to the day of his final accountability before God. And basically, Luther, he said that that day, when you live your life in light of that coming day, when you stand before the Lord as one who will give an account for your life, that impacts the way that you live your life and everything about your life here in the present. And so that was true for Luther. It ought to be true for us. And so it's in that sense that the subject of the afterlife, uh, the subject of heaven and hell and the final judgment all of this is very practical to our lives now because it impacts the way that we presently live. And so these final chapters of Revelation really turn our thoughts toward the future. And this is something that's bright for believers, but something that's foreboding for unbelievers and those who die in their sins. Now, last week we spent most of our time considering the various answers to this question what happens to a person when they die? And all around the world, you'll only find just a handful of answers to that question. All of the world's religions, all of the philosophical systems from around the world, with reference to the afterlife, they can really all be boiled down into roughly five or six categories. On one hand, you have naturalism, and that's a view which says that this life is all that there is and there's nothing after death. Uh, at death, party's over, lights out, that's it. All that is is what you see now. Reality is made up of only the material, what you see. Platonism, this is a view that says that only the soul lives on, and death really is just the end of the body, which really is a prison for the soul any, anyhow. And so the ultimate goal would be to be free from the body. Well, that's another view that's not in keeping with what the Scripture teaches. And then there's the view known as annihilationism that basically says that the wicked will be snuffed from existence while only the good live on. Hinduism and Eastern religion says that the soul goes through this process of reincarnation, all based upon the law of karma. And if a person is good, then they'll be reincarnated in a little bit of a higher uh, class. If they're bad, they'll come back in a lower life form, that kind of thing. And none of that, all of these ideas are really held in contrast with biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is unique in that it says that the soul of a person lives on after physical death while the body awaits a time of future resurrection. God very much still has a plan in mind for the body. And so 
the soul of a man or a woman who dies in Christ immediately goes to heaven to be with Christ. I'm grateful for the child of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord Jesus. Well, the soul of the person who dies in their sin. That person is separated from God in hell, and yet both will await final resurrection, one to endless life and the other to endless condemnation, and that's the teaching of the Scriptures. Daniel chapter 12 Verse 2 says that in the last days, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awaken, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so each and every single one of us will one day be raised physically, and we will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is going to be the judge? Well, Jesus is the judge. John chapter 5, Jesus himself said that the Father judges no one, but he's committed all judgment to the Son. And so every single person who has ever lived, as the providence and the plan of God would have it, that person is destined to stand before Jesus Christ. And either you will stand before him as Savior, having bowed the knee to him and confessed him as your Savior and your Lord in this life, or a person will stand before him as the judge. And so that's talking about every single one of us in this room. And folks, listen, that's something that we need to carefully think about. And, and, and really, we need to weigh our life uh, against the backdrop of such sobering truth. Jesus said that an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of Man. They're going to come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so the resurrection of judgment that Jesus refers to there in John 5, 28, 29, this is a reference to the event that's under consideration here as we've come to Revelation chapter 20. These verses, verses 11 through 15, what's being described in these verses is the destiny of the unsaved dead. And so I want to return to that subject this morning. And again, this is a very serious matter. I mean, is there anything more pressing that you can think of? Anything more important than the destiny of men and women who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior? Now, we'll read the passage here in just a moment. But I do think before we move any further... Uh, there are at least three things that we need to understand as we take up these very important matters of heaven and hell and the afterlife. All right, the first thing we need to understand is that this truth about heaven, hell, and final judgment, this is something that ought to be approached by us with a sense of humility. We don't flippantly consider these subjects that are contained within these final chapters of the Bible. Now, many of the things that we've looked at throughout our study of Revelation have been what we could describe as being secondary doctrinal issues, issues related to the timing of the rapture, you know, the various views of the kingdom, the premillennial view, the postmillennial view, the amillennial view, and so on and so forth. And those are secondary issues because they're, they're not issues to divide over. People within the same local church can, can have a little bit of a different understanding over these issues, and that's fine. 
However, this issue of heaven, hell, and final judgment, this is something that we can't afford to be wrong on because we can't live in a world of conjecture when it comes to these eternal realities, especially when we can know what's certain because the Bible is not vague when it comes to this issue. The Bible is certain, the Bible is clear when it comes to the subject of heaven and hell. And the Word of God is the only foundation upon which we can stand as we think on these matters. You know, Jesus said that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So we we don't really need to weigh man's opinion. I'm not so much interested in what people think about heaven and hell and what their opinions are on these issues. Let's just get to the heart of the matter, the real crux of the issue. What is it that the Bible has to say about the afterlife? What does the Bible teach us about heaven and hell? And so we need this humility then that trembles before the Word of God. Now, there's a second thing that we need to understand Uh, The truth about heaven, hell, and final judgment, this is something that ought to produce within us a sense of clarity. We're to approach it with a profound sense of humility, but it ought to produce within us this sense of clarity. We live in a world where we're constantly being bombarded with all kinds of distractions as the people of God. We're constantly being blinded by that which is temporary and fleeting, and, and we're obviously numbed by so many things that are trivial. We all have busy lives. All of us came to church this morning after having experienced a busy week. I mean, if you were here on our campus, school started back on Thursday and people coming and going and dropping off kids and our parking lot gets, it's a madhouse uh, during the week. Uh, at drop-off time, pick-up time and all of that. You've got responsibilities at work. Some of you have sons and daughters that you've dropped off at college, you've had college move-in day, and all kinds of stuff. And all of that's well and good, and all of that's important and have its place. But this issue, what are we living for? What does so much of our time, energy, effort, so much of our mental focus, are, are, we, are, we, are we temporal? Are we minded? Do we, are we earthly-minded, thinking only of temporary matters, or do we ever really stop to consider and contemplate the eternal. If we're not careful, we can amuse ourselves to death. We can immerse ourselves in a world of Netflix and endless social media scrolling and constantly have to be watching the news to see what the current arguments are and the political landscape and all of that. We're worried about what we eat, what we don't eat, what we look like, what we don't look like. And to that, Jesus says, don't worry about your life here and what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, what you put on your body, because life is so much more than this, Jesus says. So when we come to this issue of the afterlife and heaven and hell, it ought to produce within us a sense of clarity, reminding us of what really is most important. Let's not be so weighed down with things that ultimately won't matter 10 days from now, much less 10 billion years from now. But let me tell you what will matter is your relationship with God. That's going to matter. Your children, their relationships with God, that's going to matter 10 billion years from now. So we need to approach this subject with humility. It will produce within us a sense of clarity 
There's a third truth that we really need to be mindful of, and, and, and it's this. The truth about heaven, hell, and final judgment ought to motivate us with a sense of urgency. Urgency. Do we believe what the Bible teaches about heaven and hell? Because if we do, the implications that that has on our life in a practical sense is staggering. Because if what the Bible says is true, if Jesus is the only way to be saved from sin, if Jesus is the only way that sinful men and women can be reconciled to a holy God, and if there are eight billion people in the world, and and liberal estimates say, well, roughly 30 to 31% of those are Christian, and many of those are simply called Christian because, you know, it's a social attachment or a political affiliation or that kind of thing. But let's just be generous and say one-third of the world's population are Christian. What does that mean for the other two-thirds of the world's population who don't know Jesus? Or what about the nearly two billion of those who have never even heard about Jesus or the gospel? So am I content to just come to church this morning and to sing songs and to give and put an offering in the plate on the way out the door and go about my life this week without a sense of urgency? Because listen, if we believe the Bible, and I believe we should take these matters seriously, if we believe what the Bible says about hell and judgment, then men and women, that will produce within us a sense of urgency. Urgency if you don't know Jesus. Urgency if you do know Jesus to tell your friends and your neighbors about Jesus and to participate in the mission of God, to leverage your life and your resources ultimately for the sake of the kingdom. Now, all of that is just my sermon before my sermon. Now let's get to the text. Verse 11, the apostle John says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What a sobering verse of Scripture, verse 15, truly is. If you go back through these verses, you'll notice that the word dead or death is mentioned roughly seven times. And so what this passage is referring to, it's describing the destiny of the unsaved dead. All who stand before this great white throne judgment are those who have died in their sins from human history, died apart from Christ. And keep this in mind, the timeline that we've looked at as we've studied the book of Revelation, in the first part of chapter 20, uh, there's a description of the millennial kingdom of Christ which I believe refers to a literal kingdom of Christ that will last 1,000 years after the return of Christ. He's going to set up his kingdom on earth. We're going to rule and reign with him. 
the first resurrection, which is the resurrection of the dead in Christ and believers, all of that will happen prior to the millennial reign of Christ. And so the judgment seat of Christ, this is something which applies only to believers. And that's something that's going to happen before the millennial kingdom, where believers go to stand before Christ uh, not to be judged on the basis of our sin because our sin's already been judged at the cross. If you are in Jesus Christ, judgment has already passed over Jesus in your place. He's paid the price for your sin. And so someone asked the question, well, what does that, why are we standing at the judgment seat? What is it that's going to be judged or evaluated? Listen, it's the works of my life as a believer, my service, All of that's going to be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ, and I'm going to be rewarded in the kingdom on the basis of of that. And so that's a separate event that applies only to believers. This event that's being described here in these verses we've read, known as the great white throne judgment, this is a judgment that applies only to those who are unbelievers. And this is the resurrection of the unjust that's going to happen at the end of the kingdom where all who have died in their sins from history past are going to be raised to stand before Jesus the judge before their final sentence is going to be carried out at that particular time. And so this is a sobering passage of Scripture, one that should motivate us as believers to spread the gospel among the lost. Now, some things from the passage that we notice. First of all, the scene that's described. This is is evident in verse number 11. John describes the scene. He says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated upon it. John is taken to headquarters where the seat of power is, the, the throne of God himself. It's the throne that occupies the focus of John, and nearly 50 times throughout Revelation, there's this mention of thrones. And so the scene that's described here in the passage is that of a court or a tribunal. This is a place of final accountability. It's a great throne because of its significance, its authority. It's a white throne because that speaks of the purity, the majesty, the unparalleled holiness of the one who occupies the throne. And so from this throne comes the absolute truth of God, the unlimited majesty of God, the unchallenged sovereignty of God. This is the final judgment seat for the judge of mankind to sit and make his judgment. One thing that we can be certain of, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that a day of final judgment is coming. It's all throughout the Bible, cover to cover. Acts chapter 17, verse 30, says that these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's ordained. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so here you have the unsaved dead standing before Jesus Christ the judge before their final sentence is going to be carried out. And so this is the same thing that the prophet Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 7 of his book, where Daniel says, I saw thrones that were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was white like snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. 
His throne was ablaze with flames. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. The court sat. The books were opened. And so Daniel sees the same thing that the Apostle John is describing here in this passage. The day that they're referring to is the day when the unsaved dead stand before Jesus Christ, the judge, and true justice is carried out. So that's the scene that's described. Now notice the second thing, and that's the session that's assembled. Court is in session. Uh, Divine court is convened here in this passage. Verse 12, John describes what he saw. He says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And so there's some things to pay attention to uh, when you consider this this scene. Uh, First off, notice how the dead will all be gathered together. And again, this is the unsaved dead. Unbelievers from every age, men and women whose names are not written in the book of life. Believers will not be present at this point because they've already been evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. That took place before the millennium. Applies only to those who are believers. Listen, Romans 8.1 is true of you if you are in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to the one who is in Christ Jesus. Aren't you grateful for that? Uh, The sentence for my sin was carried out. Jesus paid that price. Jesus died the death that I should have died for my sin. And now this gracious exchange has taken place where God made him who knew no sin to be sin in my place so that I could be made his righteousness. Jesus took my sin and gave me his righteousness and there's no condemnation for the one who's in Christ. But you see, it's the destiny of the unsaved dead that's being presented here in this passage. John MacArthur says of this that it's man's last day in God's court. This trial will not be like those familiar trials on earth. For on this day, those uh, who are present will experience a different kind of court. There will be no debate about guilt or innocence. There will be a prosecutor but no defender. There will be an accuser but no advocate. There will be an indictment but no case. There'll be a swift presentation of the convicting evidence, but no rebuttal. A testimony with no cross-examination. There will be an utterly unsympathetic judge and no jury made up of one's peers. There will be a sentence, but no appeal. A punishment with no parole in a prison with no escape. That's what's being described here in this passage of Scripture. So the dead will all be gathered. Now, where will they come from? Well, notice that the graves will all be emptied. John sees the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And where do they come from? Verse 13, the sea gave up its dead. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. So this is the resurrection of the unrighteous. So wherever men have died in history past, wherever their grave is, be it the depths of the sea, or be it some mountaintop, they're going to be raised to stand before Jesus the judge. Well, someone says, well, they died. Well, where is their soul now? Well, their soul's currently in prison. That's what Hades is. Death gets the body, but you see, Hades is what gets the soul. Think of it this way. A person commits a crime, and they're awaiting their final sentencing. 
awaiting their trial, they go to the local jail. But once they stand before the judge, once the trial and the sentence has been carried out, they're sent to, uh, they're sent to central prison in Raleigh or somewhere else like that. Now, someone says, well, what's worse, the local jail or central prison? I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in either place, either place because jail is jail. But even our own justice system reflects what the Bible says is true of God's justice. By the way, we have no justice apart from the objective standard of God and His truth and His holy justice. And that's what's being carried out here in this text. So the graves will all be emptied up. Uh, No exceptions. The dead are there, small and great, men and women of different rank. You've got kings. They're not going to be treated any differently than their subjects. Those who walk down the red carpet will be standing alongside those who were unknown. Those who had a lot of money and possessions in life will be there just the same as those who had nothing. And there's only one thing that unites this multitude. They have this in common. They all lack the kind of righteousness that God demands for entrance into heaven. It's not self-righteousness that God demands for entrance into heaven because self-righteousness won't get you there. You've got to have Savior righteousness. You've got to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that's something that's received only through faith. You've got to be dressed in his righteousness alone, and then and only then will you be faultless as you stand before the throne. So only the gift of Christ's righteousness will save them from being forced to stand in their own merits. And so none of that applies to the unsaved dead. So here they are standing before the judge on the basis of their own merits and even the best in the crowd still woefully comes up short. Because what's God's standard? Well, it's his own perfection, his own holiness. And the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the dead will all be gathered, the graves will all be emptied, and then notice the books will all be opened up. Verse 12 says that books, as in the plural sense of the word, books were opened up, and that indicates more than one book. And best I can tell, there are at least three books that are going to be considered at the great white throne judgment. There's the book of truth on one hand. This is, this is the, the law of God. Uh, This is the perfection of God. Man's not going to be judged by his own standard of judgment. No, he's going to be judged by the perfect standard of God's truth. And that's something that all of us, we, we all come up woefully short of his perfect standard. A second book is the book of deeds. This is the record of every minute from every life of every person who's ever lived. Which means that there are no such, in, there's no such thing as an inconsequential word or action in your life. It all matters. It's all being recorded. Every thought, every deed, every idle word, Jesus said, men will give an account for it in the day of judgment. And then the third book is the book of life. The book of life, this is something that Scripture refers to frequently. Those whose name uh, is written in the book of life, these are believers. 
Those who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're saved, if you've been born again, your name is written in the book of life. But if your name's not written in the book of life, then listen, you stand condemned by the book of truth, you stand condemned by the book of deeds, and there's no other place for you to turn. And so the judgment on that day is going to be individual. The dead are judged on the basis of what's found in the record. And they're not gonna be judged by the standard of the next man. God's not going to judge on the basis of some curve. No, if anyone comes short of the glory of God, to any degree, he or she will stand condemned before the bar of God's holy justice. Now, I know this raises questions about those who've never heard the gospel. What are we to believe about men and women who die without ever having heard about Jesus? Though there are varying degrees of punishment, and that's something that the scripture teaches, all will be without excuse. There will be no one who stands before the judge at the great white throne judgment who has a legitimate excuse. All will be without excuse. All have sinned against God. Romans chapter one says that all of humanity is without excuse. God has revealed himself sufficiently in a general way. He's written his law upon the human conscience. So that all of humanity is really without excuse. All humanity has the knowledge of God. But see, here's the thing. Oftentimes they, they, they suppress that knowledge and they suppress that truth. And Paul deals with that and the way that sinful men do that in the first chapter of Romans. And yet there will be varying degrees of punishment. And there's evidence for that in Scripture. Uh, in Matthew chapter 10, uh, verse 15, when Jesus sent out his disciples... You remember when he sent them out, he gave them this commission. He told them where to go, what to do, what to say. Well, you can look in, in Matthew chapter 10. He basically says that if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, this is verse 14 of that passage. He says, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And the idea is, they're sinning against such light, such an abundance of light and truth. I wonder what judgment will be like for those who lived in the Christian West with the abundance of truth and the abundance of churches and the abundance of Bibles. And everywhere you go, you see billboards with John 3, 16 etched on those billboards or other passages of Scripture. Or, or statements like Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Western civilization is without excuse. There's been an abundance of light. And yet, even within an earshot of our campus this morning, there are men and women who no one's ever really explained to them the gospel. No one's ever explained to them the nature of salvation. They may have an idea of Christianity but it may be a wrong idea. I think this really hit me right between the eyes about, I guess it was five years ago when I was in Vietnam. And a friend of mine and I were walking in a particular part of one of those cities there. And there was this college student, young lady who came up to us, saw that we were Americans. We kind of stood out. <laughs> 
saw that we were Americans and, and, and wanted to practice her English. And she said, can I practice my English? I don't get a chance to do that very, very much. And so we just, we made small talk and she asked about us and what life was like in the United States. And I asked her what life was like as a college student there in Vietnam. And I felt like, okay, here's an opportunity to really share the gospel. And so I began talking to her about Jesus. And she looked at me and asked the question, who, who is this? And I told her about Jesus who died and Jesus who rose again from the dead. And she says, I've never heard this, ever. And she represents one of those many billions around the planet. Maybe even someone who lives on your street. Don't think that those who've never heard about Jesus live in far remote places. No, some are right underneath our noses. But if we're so weighed down by the trappings of the temporal and the trivial, how will we ever live with that sense of urgency that takes this message to our lost neighbors? And so there will be varying degrees of punishment, but all will be without excuse. And that's what the scripture teaches. Now, notice one final thing, and that's this, the sentence that's passed. You've got the scene as it's described. There's a session that's assembled, but ultimately, what's the sentence that's handed down at the great white throne judgment? Well, John says in verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Death will have served its purpose at that point. Hades, being the prison for the soul, will have served its purpose at that point. And John says, this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's the most sobering verse in all the Bible, isn't it? The, uns the saved will find themselves enjoying the presence of the Lord. The unsaved will find themselves forever removed from his presence. And as one Scottish theologian put it, they pass into a night on which no morning dawns. Warren Wiersbe says that hell is a witness to the righteous character of God. He must judge sin. And yet it's also a witness to human responsibility. The fact that people are not helpless victims, but creatures able to make choices. Hell is also a witness to the awfulness of sin. If we once saw sin as God sees it, we would understand why such a place as hell exists. And folks, lest we forget, the one person in the Bible who talked about hell the most was the Lord Jesus. The one who's perfect love, the giver of grace, prince of peace, he's also the one who had the most to say about hell. Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus had a lot to say about the subject. He uses the word Gehenna, translated as hell, at least a dozen times in the Gospels. He uses synonyms involving fire roughly 20 times in the Gospels. He describes it in vivid detail, describing it as a place of unquenchable fire, outer darkness, eternal torment. He says it's a place where the worm doesn't die, where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret 
a place from which there is no return, even to warn loved ones. And people say, well, that language in the Bible, all of that's metaphoric. You can't take that literally. Fire, darkness, and all of that. Let me ask you a question. Just suppose it is metaphoric language. What do you reckon it's referring to? Not something more pleasant than fire and darkness. Something far worse, perhaps. And someone says, well, why did Jesus talk about it so much? Well, because he knew that hell was something created not for man, but for the devil and his angels. But those who refuse the grace of God and spurn the mercies of Christ and reject Christ, where will they spend eternity? But in this place known as the lake of fire with the one who ultimately is responsible So you can't believe in the Jesus of the Gospels and not believe in hell. Jesus doesn't give give us that option. And you can't love your neighbor while at the same time being apathetic about their spending eternity in hell. Because if we believe this, then this changes the dynamic of our ministry as a church. If we believe this, This ought to change the trajectory of your life as a Christian man or woman. No longer can we be content to just simply critique worship services after we leave on Sunday. Oh, the music was good today. Well, the sermon, man, I don't know. I kind of dozed off a time or two. Did you see what they were wearing? I can't believe they were sitting on that side of the church and not the other side of the church. Listen. Gone are the days where we're just satisfied with empty religion. Oh, God, may this produce urgency in my heart and in your heart. May it impact the way we give and serve and love people. Invite people to church. I don't, let's not come to church alone anymore. Let's bring people with us. Early in the morning on May 26th, 2002, there was a tragedy that occurred in the state of Oklahoma. There was a towboat pulling freight barges down the Arkansas River. And suddenly the captain of that towboat blacked out. He lost control of the tow and it slammed into a bridge support under I-40, which then led to the collapse of the bridge sending trucks and vehicles into the river. To make matters worse, it was pouring the rain that morning, which limited visibility for drivers coming down the highway. Well, there was a fisherman who had been near the bridge early that morning who witnessed the whole thing, and he quickly sprung into action. He had a flare gun in his boat, which he grabbed and then used to try to alert the drivers coming down the highway before it was too late. Well, before the traffic finally came to a stop that morning, 14 people plunged to their deaths, and another 11 people were seriously injured. 
Now, here's the thing. If you knew that a bridge was out, you'd be like that fisherman. You'd do absolutely everything in your power to warn unsuspecting travelers of the danger that was just up ahead. You'd gladly risk appearing crazy for the sake of saving souls. And the same thing ought to be true when it comes to the reality of hell. C.S. Lewis said it this way, when the whole world is running off a cliff, he who is running in the opposite direction appears to have lost his mind. Pastor, you sound crazy this morning. If we talk about hell, people will think we're crazy. It's not culturally appropriate or sensitive. What if the whole culture is headed off a cliff and they need to know it? Those who are traveling in the opposite direction are going to appear a little bit crazy. But it may just be they know something. Let's stand for prayer this morning. With heads bowed and eyes closed, do you sense the urgency of the moment? Have you come to this issue with humility in your heart, laying aside the opinions of man, considering the weight of what Scripture says, trembling at the Word of God? God, help us be humble. And has this produced clarity, maybe to help you see the nature of your life currently, the things that most excite you or worry you. Does it motivate you to live with a profound sense of urgency? If you're saved, urgency in taking the gospel to those that are perishing. Verbally sharing the gospel with people as you have opportunity. Giving to support the cause of Christ and the work of men and women who are serving as missionaries and overseas places. But if you're not saved, I urgently appeal to you this morning on the authority of God's word, come to Christ. The invitation is open and extended to all. Come to Christ, taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, thank you for your word. And God, as we've considered such a sobering passage of Scripture, Lord, may the Holy Spirit take this word and may it go to work in our hearts and lives and minds, impacting the way that we live and steward our resources, both as individual Christian men and women and as a church, oh Lord. May it determine what we champion and view as being the most important. God, may we be burdened over the fact that literally billions of people have never heard. Who will go? Who will preach? Lord, send us for Christ's sake. Amen.